I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there and you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, we're an international podcast with an international guest this week coming to you live, <laughs> recorded, one of those, all the way from Glasgow, Scotland. We got William Gibson. He has the special privilege of being our first Scottish guest. And also the special privilege of being like uh, maybe like one of two Scottish friends that I have here. Uh, he's a great guy. Really looking forward to everyone knowing about him and his work. Um, it's going to be cool. It's going to be a cool conversation. It is a Magnificast Across the Pond edition for sure. Uh, we finally done <laughs> it, right. achieved it. And William was a great first impression. I got to say, I've never been to Scotland. I don't know any Scottish people, but uh, if William is representative, I'm down. I'll come visit. Yeah, you'll have to. I mean, of the of the entire United Kingdom, Scotland's the good part, I would say. <laughs> uh, that's good to know. Well, um, we're going to get to William in a minute. But before we do, we do have uh, a couple quick announcements and um, also our uh, a free advertisement for our good friends at Kirkridge Retreat Center. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about uh, why we're doing that. Maybe midway through the episode, we'll do the full uh, official announcement. Uh, the brief cliff notes is Lydia Wiley Kellerman, who you have heard on this podcast before, uh, G's editor extraordinaire and a great writer and a good person overall. She is the director of this place, Kirkridge Retreat Center. And it's a wild spot. I got to say, I follow them on Facebook. They're always doing a bunch of really extremely interesting uh, programming. Lots of cool people are there. I'm pretty jealous I haven't been able to make it. And I am going to try to make an effort to go for sure. Uh, but we'll tell you more about what you can expect to experience at that retreat center midway through the episode. Before we get there, Matt, we also have uh, some housekeeping of our own, some uh, self-promotion. And uh, you're always really good at doing commercials for us. So I'm going to turn it over to you to do that. Dean, everyone needs a T-shirt, I would say. At least one, right? You got to have at least one T-shirt. I'd say at least two, one for laundry day. Okay, that's great. If you, but if you have three, you're in trouble uh, because St. Basil, he says that if you've got three T-shirts, you got to give one away. But you got space in your closet for two T-shirts at least. And uh, if you want a place to go get those T-shirts, you can go to redbubble.com and then search the Magnificast. And you can find all kinds of really great T-shirts that you didn't even know you wanted. We got a shirt with a new, the new Magnificast logo on it. We've got a shirt with Ernesto Cardinal's face on it. Man, clothing you could never buy anywhere <laughs> else in the entire world. So anyways, get on, get on the internet, Al Gore's internet. 
uh, go to Redbubble and you can buy a t-shirt or a sticker or something else. William, thanks for coming on the show. Um, excited to have a guest after having such a long guestless streak. Um, and uh, it's great It's great to note as well that you're our first ever Scottish guest, and that is great. Yeah, what a privilege. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyways, whenever we have someone new on the show, we usually just ask them to introduce themselves, tell us who they are, what their project is, and uh, I don't know, how would you do it? What? Who are you? What? What are you all about? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, so my name is William Gibson. It would be kind of hard to box me into, I suppose, one part of like what I do or a project that I'm working on or whatever. But currently, my role is just a new job that I've started with the student Christian movement in the United Kingdom. So that's part of what's called the Faith in Action Project. And with that, there are two roles as part of it. There's the social justice role and then there's a theology and resources role so i've just started in the theology and resources role with scm there's a couple of things that that will involve it will involve like doing events with students a lot of the project is focused around the theology of dietrich bonhoeffer and looking at stories of resistance in nazi germany and how that plays out in the church today as well as that, I'm going into my final year at the University of Glasgow, and I'm studying theology and religious studies there. I'm going to be writing my dissertation there on the political theology of George MacLeod, the founder of the Iona community, specifically a theology of nonviolence and pacifism. Um, but as well as that, there's some other academic work that I've been working on recently, some on the Iona community and then another one which is a chapter on the theology of trade unions and labor movements, which I think we'll maybe talk about a little bit later on. And lastly, you might be able to see on my wall in the background here, um, that was from our union recognition campaign in Apple. So I worked at Apple for eight years and helped to lead and organize the efforts to unionize the first Apple retail store in the UK, which we were success successful in. We managed to sign a collective bargaining agreement earlier this year um so yeah that was a very busy year last year for my my last uh, little bit of time at apple but it was really rewarding and great to actually get involved in a lot of organizing and through that i've made lots of great connections in the trade union and labor movement here in the uk wow very busy uh but lots of cool projects on the go cool things you've been involved with and uh you're a great first candidate for a, a first scottish guest so i think you're you're doing a good job uh, representing here in the podcast um so many places that we could maybe start this conversation but maybe at least the one that jumps out to me right away is the student christian movement uh we've talked with some folks from the scm or scm adjacent on this podcast in the past or even talked about it um, lots of active stuff in the Philippines and looking at things in Cuba and so on. So talk to us a little bit about the shape of the SCM in the UK. Like, what's it like? What does the student Christian movement do? What do you do for it? Maybe in greater detail, how is that kind of contributing to the, the Christian left uh, there? Yeah, so if you don't know anything about the student Christian movement, it is the oldest student Christian group in Great Britain, I believe at one point. 80% of university students were actually members of SCM at its high point, but it started in 1889. Um, they were very involved in a lot of the kind of early ecumenical movements and missionary movements at the time that led to the formation of the things like the World Council of Churches. Um, but the way that SCM would describe itself here 
is as a generous community expressing a lived faith in Jesus Christ, where social action meets prayerful devotion. Um, and they seek to be both a radical voice for equality and justice and a safe home for progressive Christian students. And the way that they seek to uh, do that and create that community and have that radical voice is through uh, four aims, and that's creating community, deepening faith, seeking justice, and celebrating diversity. So my role within that is as a faith and action project worker, which is, as I've already said, is focused on theology and resources. So there is the potential that I'll be looking at a podcast for them that is not yet fully confirmed, but they did start that in 2020, I believe, for a short time, um, as well as writing blogs on different political issues. I've already wrote a, a blog in the past for them on some of the Scottish politics, so specifically around the uh, election of the first minister here. Um, just because there was a leadership contest in the SNP in Scotland. So I wrote about some of that because there was a very divisive figure um, called Kate Forbes in the SNP at the time. She's still a member there, but she ran for leadership and was part of the Free Church of Scotland, which if you don't know anything about, Presbyterianism has split many times in Scotland as it has elsewhere. Um, and the Free Church broke off from the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. Um, and has gradually become more conservative than the Church of Scotland. Uh, and today, like they oppose same-sex marriage, uh, Kate Forbes came out on uh, online and in interviews, basically um, saying that she did not condone sex outside of marriage and some quite antiquated views. Um, so yeah, I, I spoke a little bit about the need for tolerance and um, like understanding and um a society but not necessarily meaning that people should be in a position of power that's going to actively harm other people because they have a different viewpoint like when you're in a position of power you need to actually be using that for the benefit of all um so yeah that's some of the stuff that i've done in the past with them i'll continue to write blogs i'll continue to do stuff online as well as hosting student events and there are multiple campaigns and initiatives that the student christian movement run here in the UK. One of the most recent ones is called Honest Church. So Honest Church is about just helping churches and congregations to actually speak honestly about what their stance is on things like LGBTQ plus inclusion and on like women's place in leadership and ministry. Because um, a lot of places, some students will show up to, they say, all are welcome here as the kind of classic tagline of the churches like Hillsong or evangelical ones like that, where you see the tagline, you think it's going to be okay. It seems modern and progressive, like this will be all right. And then they get into it and realize that they can give their money, but they can't be on a team. They can't be on a public facing platform. They end up being very hurt by the experience. So SEM here is basically just trying to prevent that from happening and calling on churches to just be honest about what their position is, not to change it, just to be honest about what they actually think about it, which I think is a really worthwhile campaign. Um, they're also just about to start uh, and launch what's called an Affirming Christianity course, which is a series of small group resources which start from the assumption of like shared progressive values. Um, the focus is on presenting a positive vision of progressive Christianity and inclusion and affirmation, rather than just constantly trying to counteract the arguments from other parts of the church. Um, 
And the first is called How to Be a Good Christian Ally and is for groups and churches who want to stand in solidarity with and support LGBTQ plus Christians, but maybe don't know how to do that and, and want to support, they need support in that part of expressing their faith. Cool. It's great to hear you talk about the SCM and what it looks like in the UK. We've talked to people that have been a part of it in uh, in Canada, and Dean and I both know some people in, a part of it, a part of it in uh, the US too. But um, it makes me feel left out that it wasn't such a thing when I was in college in the US. But a uh, quick flag for all of our great US listeners, which there are so many, most of them even. Uh, if you're interested, it's called the WSCF US. That's the the US one, and it does exist, and you could be a part of it if you really wanted to be. So. Just letting you know, <laughs> it's out there. Um, well, cool. You, um, William, you were at the DSEI arm fair uh, protest in London. <laughs> really important that I add the word protest at the end of that. You weren't there participating. You weren't buying arms. Um, you were there at, uh, to, to protest uh, as a as a member or representative of the student Christian movement. Can you tell us about uh, some of the specifics of the protest itself? Like, uh, what what's the DSEI? Maybe people don't know. Um, why isn't he protesting? Why were there so many Christian people out there? Yeah, of course. Um, so the DSEI is the Defense and Security Equipment International Arms Fair. This year, it was Europe's biggest ever arms fair with 2,800 weapons manufacturers present and over 35,000 attendees. Um, there were eight countries that were invited that are on the UK's own human rights watch list, um, which just shows you it's not really about like uh, human rights, it's really about profit in a lot of cases. And uh, that included countries like Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, Colombia, Egypt, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan that were invited. Um, so it needs to be protested for a number of reasons, if it's not obvious from what I've just described there. Um, but yeah, to, one, to counter neocolonialism, uh, arm, arms are a destabilizing force um, and are not conducive to peace, reconciliation or progress in regions by the West giving weapons to potentially authoritarian governments or um, other regimes that look to kind of usurp democracy in a lot of places. Um, it can act as a form of neocolonialism. So protesting against these actions is necessary. Um, to prevent the unnecessary deaths of, of the world's working poor and to demand justice for those who have already died as a result of these weapons, uh, as well as to promote democracy and negotiations instead of authoritarianism and violence. And also a, a big one, especially here in the UK, it's necessary to not exacerbate the current refugee crisis because a lot of the time what is happening is that UK arms manufacturers or the UK government are making deals to send arms to uh, conflicts that are creating refugees. And then those refugees are trying to come to the UK for refuge after just having their whole life upturned or losing loved ones and going through an absolutely horrendous ordeal to then have a horrendous campaign from the current Tory government that's saying stop the boats. Um, I was in Cambridge just recently, which is where I was presenting my chapter on theologizing trade unions. And it was the first time I've been to Cambridge and I got off the train and as I was walking down the street, I walked past a homeless man and uh, you know, about six foot five uh, white English man began walking towards me and said, uh, was just shouting how Britain's destitute stop the boats and just continue to chant that going down the street. So there's definitely a hostile environment currently when it comes to refugees, which seems entirely incompatible with the fact that 
Britain is involved in creating the very circumstances that lead to an increased number of refugees. Um, and part of that, I don't know if it's just uh, them wanting to continue to act as much as they can in a, as an imperialist power, but um, it does seem like that sometimes. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> there's a big arms fair that happens in Canada every summer as well. And yeah, it's all the same kinds of uh, challenges and bizarre um, contradictions and so on that you see. But it's really neat to hear that there is a, a significant contingent of faith-based folks who are there to, to say something about it. Um, you uh, you were there as part of the SCM, but maybe talk a little bit about what other faith communities might have been there. What is it about an event like this that creates a, an ecumenical or an interfaith environment? You know, how, do, how are people kind of mediating that, that common stance through those faith traditions? Yeah, so there was representatives from the Quakers, the Jesuits, the Church of England, Methodists, Church of Scotland, and more. Um, but the, the dominant ones really that were there seemed to be the Quakers. There was a significant number of, of those. Um, so to give context as to what the actual protest was and what we did was that a small group of us kind of started at Parliament Square and we were going to meet the larger protest later in the day. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more a little later on of that journey to the Excel Centre where it was all happening. But we arrived and were greeted by a large group of Quakers and Jesuits and uh, Church of England ministers and people that were part of Christian Climate Action. Um, and we met just uh, about five minute walk away from the XL Centre and then walked towards the XL Centre. When we arrived, we were greeted by a group of anarchists that had been waiting outside, it seemed like, most of the day. Uh, one of them was the Peace Turnup, which was a very interesting outfit that they had on. Um, but yeah, uh, greeted by this group of anarchists um, and they were so excited to see this large group of, of people coming to take part in protest. And um, we basically took part in a vigil outside of the Excel Centre just directly. There was gates that were easily about maybe two, three hundred metres back from the, the centre and then just row after row of security. Um, so we were just outside of those gates and, and held a vigil outside there. Um, but I believe that we were there because of a shared commitment to nonviolence, peace and reconciliation. Um, now obviously, each of those groups will express that commitment differently based on their own religious tradition and maybe use um, different language for it. But the event itself is a focal point in time and location for militarism and the military industrial complex. Um, because sometimes it can be hard to participate in nonviolent direct action against militarism because it often involves some significant risk. Like if you're going to a military base and you want to protest that there's going to be a very swift response and a very direct response, especially if you're in a country like America, for example, you could die um, very easily to take that sort of action at a military base uh, or something like that. So having opportunities where you can actually directly protest against the military industrial complex can often be rare because it's just, under your nose, you don't actually see where it is a lot of the time. I, I was very surprised to see that a lot of the kind of arms companies and, and producers, their headquarters in London were in very unassuming office blocks that just looked like it could be any corporate company that was as part of it. But it turns out it was Boeing, the third largest weapons manufacturer in the world that was in that building. Um, and they were just around the corner from Parliament and it's just all in plain sight. But um, having an opportunity where you can actually protest that 
um, is important. And I think that's a big part of why people were showing up to do it. Um, because it's one of the few opportunities that people of faith and peace activists have to express their opposition. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, when I was, uh, I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, not very much, but I was looking at the DSCI website and I got to say, it's got to be some of the most dystopian kind of thing I've ever seen. The, the, there's this, this stock photo on the front page and it's of like three or four guys that are all in sort of military uniform and they're all together looking at like a catalog and like one of them's pointing. It's just like the, the commonplaceness of it all seems so um, grotesque and awful um, and also like banal and stupid all at the same time. I hate it. I hate the whole thing. Um, well, this is skipping around in our question list a little bit, but I think this makes sense to talk about at this point. So uh, a handful of activists, uh, they walked from Oxford to London as part of a peace pilgrimage, which I think is pretty cool. They had a, a podcast along the way that you can go back and listen to now if you want to. You should. It's interesting, I think, as a, a sort of like document of people doing a thing that people don't often do, walking long distance. Um, and I know, you know, you were talking about, uh, you, you know, you joined in on a bit of that in that like the last leg of the trip. So what do you think is significant about that like particular expression of faith um, as, a, as like a type of protest? Like, you know, the, the the pilgrimage and the march, they're two different things, but there's some kind of resonance there. And it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, so it. pilgrimage has been used for a long time as a form of protest. Um, one of my fellow pilgrims on the day is actually a scholar in pilgrimage and, and looks at all of it. And uh, she made me aware that one of the earliest examples of being um pilgrimage as a form of, of protest was in 1536 and it was against King Henry's reformation legislation and it was called the pilgrimage of grace um it did end up becoming an uprising in the northern counties of England but um it's significant it's been used for that long as a form of protest and continues to be used as that and for me I, I find it significant because it grounds you in material reality so, for example, we set off from Parliament Square in London and we began to walk to each of the individual like arms manufacturers offices and we held a vigil outside of each office where we heard stories of individuals that had been killed by the weapons that were designed and produced by the company in that building. So standing there where there is solid concrete and stone and signs with names on, it grounds you in the material reality of it. Um, which really links into like a, a theology of the incarnation and like understanding that God has become like manifest in the world through the person of Christ. Like for me, that my personal understanding of solidarity is that as the ultimate act of solidarity and that as Christians, we participate in that. Um, but another aspect of, of pilgrimage is that it forces you to rely on the generosity of others. So it reminds me of the passage in Luke 10, where Jesus says, like, carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and, and greet no one on the road. Um, but when you enter a house, say, peace to this house, and uh, so on. But essentially, a lot of the other pilgrims that had been participating in it for days were relying on the generosity of, like, different Quaker meeting houses or other churches to be able to, like, put them up for sleeping in the night or to be able to even get, like, a shower uh, and often food. So... That is uh, something which is a fairly regular practice for a lot of pilgrims is relying on the generosity of others, which is completely like counter to everything that we know about capitalism. Uh, and so participate in something like that uh, can be really freeing. Um, but it also provides a lot of time for reflective prayer or meditation 
Um, and in that way, it's a worthwhile Christian practice for better loving of our neighbor, because there's a massive difference between a five minute prayer um, for like free Palestine on a Sunday, for example, compared to consciously reflecting on it through participating in a privilege for seven days where you're constantly hearing of the struggle of the Palestinian people and being reminded of like the reality of it um, with sore feet the whole time. Like there's a, there's a very different uh, visceral feeling of solidarity that you begin to feel and understanding and compassion and empathy um, for whichever group it is that you're you're doing that for. So in this case, for, for pilgrims that were involved in this pilgrimage, if you're constantly reflecting on the the effects of the arms fair for seven days, like and then arriving at the actual arms fair where outside of the center, there's a fighter jet sitting there like right in front of you when you can see it. It's very material, it's very earthy, it roots you in the reality of exploitation and marginalization and, and all of these harmful practices and, and systems that exist. And that's why I think it's an important form of protest and, and spirituality. It's interesting as you're talking about it, uh, you know, we, we often on this podcast are maybe asking a question of like, what does Christianity contribute to a protest movement? But as you were speaking, it kind of uh, just made me think about the re reverse side of that, maybe like what's the pastoral value or the kind of, you know, how does participating in these things change Christians as well? And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, like, you know, what's the what kind of spiritual discipline is available for folks who are engaged in in some kind of activism, whether it's a pilgrimage or something else? Like, what does that do to us as people of faith? Yeah, I think it's a it's very necessary part um, because like the, the calls for justice and in, in scripture are very clear and outright and repeated multiple times. Um, and I think the, the passage that a lot of people will always go to is the, the one where Jesus talks about like you saw me hungry and you you didn't feed me or you did feed me and vice versa and um yeah going on from there but the experience of standing with a group of people um and so because I'm, I'm recognizing this in, in the sense that most protests that i go to i am going in a position of privilege i'm a white straight man um i have got a lot of privilege um and so oftentimes when i'm going to different protests or or places where you are actively fighting against systems of marginalization and, and oppression. I need to recognize that I'm not there to really contribute my voice or my opinion, but to stand in solidarity. So my experience of a protest is going to be very different from someone who comes from a, a marginalized background going to that, that it's going to a protest when you're from a marginalized background could feel very dangerous. Uh, it could feel very frightening. Um, but for me, oftentimes I'm going there because I just need to be there in solidarity with standing alongside and supporting in whatever way um, the people I'm standing in solidarity with need me to be there for. Um, so that is a very clear example of what it means to love your neighbor, um, what it means to actually live out the Christian life, to um, be someone who is aware of the least of these that stands with the marginalized that understands what it means for the kingdom of God to come on earth. And I suppose that is the best language that I could use for my experience of, of protests and being active in social justice is that it feels like a moment of the kingdom breaking in. It feels like a moment of um, God's community being realized where all these people from so many different backgrounds and perspectives are coming together and standing alongside each other and demanding that um, justice is done essentially. And 
I, I think the most clear and visceral moment for me of like, I suppose one of the earliest protests that I went to would have been in 2020 um, in Glasgow. Before that, I'd been to a couple, but nowhere on this scale. There was a very large protest after the murder of George Floyd um, and with Black Lives Matter. And there was a large uh, protest that happened at Glasgow Green, um, which is a large park, just kind of flat, a really great space for a protest. And standing there um, really felt like a moment where you experienced what it meant to be in the community of God or like what some would maybe refer to as, as church, it felt like almost. And uh, I even oh, I write about this in my chapter about trade unions as well. The whole thing that inspired me to um, actually write a chapter on it was that I was at a public trade union meeting with the RMT, which is the Rail Maritime and Transport Workers Union. They were on strike last year and there was a public meeting for them and the room was packed it was just full of people uh it was spilling over there was an overflow room upstairs um and as people like got up onto the stage to speak there were like audible like cries from the audience of like yes and like affirmation and like solidarity and like everyone was shouting out and the whole time i was sitting there i was like i just feel like i'm back in the evangelical church like this feels very like Pentecostal it feels very like a move of the spirit it feels like um something that's happened like where the the people that are on this the stage almost seemed like prophets of some kind um so being in that like making me aware of where um God is outside of the confines of a Sunday service is I think a big part of what protest does is it shows you that God is in those places God is at the margins and so you have to go there to be able to see that because it's all fine and well talking about it in theory, but there is something really palpable and powerful about being at a protest and sensing um, the spirit of God in that moment. Hey, Magnificast listeners, guess what? This is a real podcast now. Every other podcast you've ever listened to in your life, uh, they always pause and they give you all kinds of ads for things like beds and toothbrushes and stamps and i don't know whatever else you listen to and uh we underwear always underwear <laughs> always underwear um we're trying to be you know more professional in this podcast but in a strictly magnificast way which is to say we're about to do an ad for someone who didn't pay us to do it um didn't ask us to do it <laughs> either but we offered to because it is so great and we just think more people ought to know about it and matt i'm gonna do this ad to you so matt what if i told you that there was a christian retreat happening somewhere in the United States, and you actually would want to go to it. <laughs> I would say that's a really hard sell. So maybe keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks for that invitation. Uh, as we said at the beginning of the episode, our good friend Lydia Wiley-Kellerman is uh, the director of this great place, Kirkridge Retreat and Study Center, along with a bunch of other cool staff. Um, lots of people related to G's Magazine have done retreats there, gone on retreats there, and so on. And we really like it. We think it's a really cool and important space for building, I guess, a, a unique spot for Christians to think really hard um, and also just not think very hard, I guess, unplug and kind of see what's going on in a, a beautiful space. The place, Kirkridge Retreat Center, is in Pennsylvania. Um, you can go to kirkridge.com or excuse me, kirkridge.org. Uh, one day we'll do this well enough and someone will want to pay, pay us to do it, but it's not today. Kirkridge.org. And uh, you can find all kinds of info. Lydia did tell me there are three specific retreats that people might want to go on. And one of them is right around the corner. So I guess if you're in Pennsylvania, you can uh, zip on over. But I'm going to read them out to you, Matt. 
And uh, you can tell me which of these three you would go to, I guess, if you were still living in the United okay. States. All right. Uh, the first one is a Wilderness Profits and Climate Crisis course, which starts September 29th and ends October 1st. Like I said, right around the corner. Um, it's a super interesting um, program. Uh, it's an overnight experience. There's all kinds of inter- interesting stuff, but it's led by Laurel Dykstra, a really interesting author and eco-justice activist and uh, a preacher. And you can read more info on their website. But the the key is really to think through uh, wilderness prophets and movements and how they kind of fit into the prophetic tradition. Uh, a really wild, cool premise for uh, a few days that I could not imagine doing uh, on my own. So really cool to have somebody organize it for you. That's number one, Matt. Uh, let me tell you about number two. This one, especially great, Communing Across the Veil, a G's Retreat. Uh, G's Magazine, you know it, you love it. If you're not subscribed to it, you better subscribe right now. Uh, it's a fantastic magazine. Matt and I have both written a bunch of times for it. Uh, it's great. This particular retreat is uh, especially cool because it's themed around uh, the fall 2023 issue of G's, which is on the theme of the Saints. And the registration deadline is October 23rd. Uh, it will take place on November 3rd. So you should really get in on that. You can meet a lot of good G's folks. Uh, they're all fantastic. The editors will be there and so on. And lastly, a retreat called a Raft in the Storm. Uh, which is organized by Joe Riley and Bill Wiley-Kellerman, Lydia's dad, who is an extremely cool guy. Uh, they're looking at a, a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist uh, writer and activist, and Daniel Berrigan, the Catholic writer and activist. And they're going to be talking through some of the themes that uh, come up in, in that text and why it's still relevant to us today. Um, tons of really great programming, I guess is what I'm trying to say over there at Kirkridge and Matt, uh, let me, let me add it now. Um, or let me have it. <laughs> is th- are these Christian retreats that you yourself, uh, a person who famously does not like, uh, going to youth group and so on, uh, might in fact consider going on. Yeah. They all sound pretty good actually. Um, man, I would love to go hang out with Bill Wiley Kellerman for like a week or whatever it is, a few days, even, I think that'd be a wild time. Um, you know, I was just thinking about as you're reading those, sometimes on the podcast, we, uh, we get into a funk of like, oh, remember the, remember the cool, the cool time when there was a Christian <laughs> left in the world or something. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, it's not something that you have to remember because it does still exist. And, uh, these are great places probably to figure a lot of this out. You should go. You should probably go. I think is what I'm trying to say. And I'm saying it without anyone giving me money to say it. So th- there you go. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. You should probably go. That's the great Magnificast endorsement. Uh, Kirkridge.org. Uh, you should probably go. Um, if you want more info and details and so on, you can find them all there. But uh, really, you should actually go. Like Matt said, uh, it's a nice sort of chance to not pine about what used to happen, but actually get into something that's going on right now. Kirkridge.org. You should probably go. Uh, a little bit more on the DSEI uh a few weeks back, we were talking about Christian nonviolence and direct action um, with regards to um, water defenders in the U.S., really, and also some other examples, too. But anyways, uh, there are a handful of acts of civil disobedience at the DSEI protest and also some arrests. And uh, listen, I'm, I'm new here, but I do know that there are some particularly bad laws in England, specifically, around protesting. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about that side of things and also like the civil disobedience kind of that went on at, at DSEI. Yeah, so I believe it was nine uh, peace activists that were arrested. Um, This was just prior to the actual 
conference kicking off because what they did was they were blocking the road for deliveries coming into the XL Centre. Um, so they were arrested for blocking the road. Um, but yeah, you're right. The police crime and sensing bill was brought in last year. Um, it brought some changes to police powers in England and Wales specifically. Um, policing is devolved when it comes to Scotland and Northern Ireland, so it doesn't affect us up here. Um, but I do have to be aware of it whenever I go down to London. Um, so it changed some of the powers available to police regarding protests. Um, so it allowed them to restrict things like the starting and ending times of protests and noise limits that were there. Um, and it changed like what that was on the basis of. So there were very kind of strict guidelines before, whereas now it's just on the basis of whether it would be considered a public nuisance, essentially. Um, so yeah, it's, it gives a lot more power. Although um, as kind of last run, uh, last time through the House of Lords, um, I think it was last April, um, there was a lot of the things that people were really kind of outraged about that got removed from it, which was a, a positive thing to see. So that was stuff like making uh, lock-ons like a, a crime or an offence. Um, here was one of the big ones because that was a a, um, a very important tactic for groups like Just Stop Oil and um, other climate protest groups that have been taking action in the UK um, was blocking roads and locking on to buildings and things like that. Um, so that was removed when I went through the House of Lords in April, but there's still a massive increase in the powers and a lot of it is just a lot more discretionary rather than kind of really clear rules in, in cases when uh, they can bring in those restrictions. But I mean, there was a there was a noticeable police present at the vigil, um, but it was not as big as I was expecting, I'd say. Um, but I, I mean, to be honest, I don't think sitting in silence for an hour could be justifiably considered as a nuisance. <laughs> uh, I would find it very hard to do. So it'd be a nuisance to myself. Um, but I admire all of you uh, pulling that off. Um, Let's uh, maybe switch gears a little bit and talk more about this uh, paper that you've been gesturing toward this chapter, um, talking about, uh, yeah, UK theology and, and the labor movement and so on. Uh, I'm always excited to learn about Christian theologians who are taking the time to think about labor in a particular way. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that part of your work. Why? I mean, you have this uh, this background organizing and so on at, at Apple, but why take it on? Uh, what, what are you trying to do with, with that work? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, so I was invited at the start of this year to contribute a chapter to a new book that will be coming out called Awake, Emerging and Connected New Theologies of Justice. We're hoping it will come out before the end of the year, but I'll share more with you when it is eventually published. Um, so my chapter is about theologizing trade unions. So there's kind of three aspects to the chapter. Look at the history of trade unions and the labor movement in the UK and its connection with Christianity. Um, I look at what it means to have a theological ethic of solidarity um, and then the place of intersectionality within the trade union movement. Um, now, if I had uh, more words that I could write, <laughs> I would write a whole other section on like what the church could do today uh, to support the trade union movement. Um, and trade unionists in general, so uh, and how the trade union movement could do more to engage with faith groups, for example, that that would probably be where I would expand the chapter. I may look at doing something expanding on that in the future, but for just now, it's those three sections of the history, um, the theological ethic of solidarity and intersectionality. So, regarding the history, I write about a, a couple of different figures within the 
trade union movement in the UK that are of some significance. So one of the earliest groups was called the Toll Puddle Martyrs. So that was the first kind of official group to unionize after it became legal to do so in the early 1800s. Um, but they were quickly arrested and told that they were getting shipped off to Australia uh, because they'd broken a different law about oath-taking, um, which was a very interesting way to get around it. But yeah, they made it legal to form and join a union. Um, they were agricultural workers. They were just basically trying to get better wages and conditions off of the landowner and farmers. Um, and as soon as they formed it, a part of trade union uh, movements at the time was that you would take an oath when you joined. Um, and because they took an illegal oath, uh, they were shipped off. But there were massive protests. And um, I think there was close to 100,000 people that turned up at Hyde Park at one point, or that might have been the petition that was signed, I believe. Um, but yeah, like a petition was created. There were large protests and um, movements that swelled up like all over the country, basically to protest what had happened. Um, and eventually they were all brought back. But um, George Loveless, one of the um, trade unionists that was involved in that, he was a lay Methodist minister. Um, and everything that he did, he spoke about how it was motivated by his faith, um, that it was God who would end uh, a tyrant's reign um, and view it as a, viewed it as a central and important part of his faith, um, taking part in the, the trade union movement. Uh, another part that I look at is labour churches in the UK. Now, if you've not looked at labour churches before, they are absolutely fascinating. So they popped up at the end of the 1800s, so like early 1890s, kind of mainly through to about 19... 506 and then it began to um dwindle but um it started really as an alternative to the kind of mainline churches at the time because a lot of churches just really weren't meeting the material needs of the uh, people um and we're talking about kind of ethereal otherworldly topics and the labor churches started to basically take the same structure of churches um and use it in the cause of the working class they developed like a socialist Sunday School hymn book, which is uh, great to read. Honestly, highly recommend it. There's some great songs in there. Um, but yeah, they created that. They um, had a service where almost 5,000 people attended at the founding of the Independent Labour Party in the early 1900s. Um, they had, I think, at their peak, about 50 churches across the UK. They would have Sunday services. They would have songs. They would have basically the whole structure of a Sunday service, liturgy, worship, um, but it was in the service of the working class. Um, eventually, it kind of fell apart. Like the kind of main argument for why it fell apart was basically that, like, their actual political um, understanding and ideology wasn't well formed enough to kind of sustain it, that you had all these kind of factions within it where it would splinter and it didn't really have the um, necessary structure there to to go long term but a very interesting phenomenon just showing you uh, really that connection between Christianity and the labor movement and one of the um, main ministers that was involved with that I, I believe at one point he said something along the lines of um, at one point God did use the church to fulfill his purposes in the same way that now he will use the labor movement to do um, and really saw the labor movement as the kind of next stage in moving towards the eventual coming of the kingdom of God. Um, 
so he kind of viewed it as the church had outlived its usefulness. It became part of the kind of bourgeois, like capitalist class and uh, been co-opted into it. And so the labor movement existed to bring it back to um, its founding, its roots, and um, really participate in the socialist move towards eventually a communist state. But um, And then lastly was uh, um, Helen Crawford. Helen Crawford was part of Red Clydeside which was a social movement in Glasgow in the early, well, just after World War One, basically, 1917, 1918 sort of time. Um, and this involved stuff like the rent strikes, it involved the campaign for the 40-hour work week. Um, I believe at the time Churchill deployed um, a number of tanks against people. Um, there was a massive protest in George Square, but Helen Crawford was a significant figure in Red Clydeside because throughout World War One, she had been involved in like campaigns for women's suffrage and basically was critical um, of the Pankhurst sisters um, because they had basically capitulated to the war machine at the time and basically just said, we need to redirect all our efforts to support in the war effort. And then Helen Crawford was just like, well, screw this. I, I don't really want to support the war effort. It's my brothers, it's my friends, it's my family that are dying. Uh, and there's one recollection of her being at a talk that Emmeline Pankhurst was speaking at on Glasgow Green, uh, where Helen Crawford got up on a ta table and just heckled her down, basically, and she got arrested for it. But um, yeah, she's a pretty incredible um, person. But she held like an Easter day service where uh, she spoke about like Jesus being the Prince of Peace and that like um, the need to oppose war um, and the capitalist classes that were furthering this war that was only killing the working class. Um, so yeah, and she was brought up in the Church of Scotland. She ended up marrying a Church of Scotland minister who um, was significantly older than her. It's, very uncomfortable but um yeah she was very influenced by her faith and um eventually she rejected it and uh was no longer identified with christianity but was very formational in her understanding of politics and becoming a really radical uh left-wing um political activist in glasgow um, and eventually she became one of the kind of early members of the communist party of great britain um yeah, so that's some of the, the characters that I cover for the historical aspect. Uh, also look at a theological ethic of solidarity, which basically brings in Catholic social teaching, liberation theology, Christian social ethicists. Um, and I argue that there are kind of four main points to what a theological ethic of solidarity should look like, which is relationship with a marginalized group and awareness of interconnectedness and privilege. Secondly, personal and communal action taken in partnership with that group or individuals you intend to act in solidarity with. Thirdly, a commitment to systemic change through the means of politics, prayer, and collective action. And lastly, a theological grounding in the incarnation of Jesus as the divine act of solidarity. Um, so that's the kind of theological ethic of solidarity, and I, I go a little bit more in depth with that in the chapter itself. Um, and then lastly, intersectionality. Um, a big part of the issues that we faced in organizing in Apple was that the GMB had a report, the GMB union, they 
it's a really weird name. It comes from um, the late 1800s, but it stands for the General Municipal Boilers Union. Um, but it's now the UK's largest kind of general union. They have retail workers, hospitality, oil and gas, renewables, like just kind of everyone's kind of lumped in, delivery drivers, like everything. Um, so we had unionized with them, but in, I believe it was 2020, there was a report that came out called the Monaghan Report. Uh, which basically just said that it was institutionally sexist and misogynistic uh, and that there were multiple instances of sexual assault recorded within that. And so the, one of the biggest challenges we actually faced in unionizing was some people turning around and being like, why would you associate with that? Um, and we, it was difficult. Like we didn't want to just do the kind of, but you're working for Apple card of like, what about um, the people that manufacture iPhones? What about... Um, the fact that Apple ha had suggested to shareholders that they uh, vote against like racial pay gap reporting last year. Like what about all of these injustices that exist within our company? We didn't want to do that. So we had to kind of try and just deal with it head on. But it really highlighted for me the importance and need for intersectionality within the trade union and labor movement. Um, because all, although class kind of binds us and unites us together in terms of the struggle and the fight that we're involved with, some people experience what it means to be working class differently um, based on the fact that they are a woman or they're black or they're trans or, um, and these have significant and important part to play in our understanding of class and our understanding of solidarity and what it means to take action as Christians really. Um, and the other part of that was that um, there is a group in Unite, which is for faith workers. It's the Unite Faith Workers Branch. Um, there's an interesting book by David Ashoro uh, about his experience of racism um, and the Unite Faith Workers branch, which, um, yeah, it's really his personal account of it. So there's a lot of kind of details that you maybe don't need to read when considering like uh, what it means to tackle racism within trade unions, but it's it's his personal account and it's important to acknowledge that. And he basically talks about how uh, the representation on the committee of the faith workers branch is all Christian, despite the fact that there are hundreds of Hindu and Muslim workers on the uh, in the actual branch itself. There is no representation on the committee from one of those faith groups that is all representing historically white um, Christian churches. So yeah, I, I think taking that into account is important as well when considering uh, what it means to theologize trade unions. But as I said, I would love to expand someday on uh, what the church can do and what the trade union movement could really learn from the church as well. Yeah, it's so cool to hear you talk about all of that. Um, <laughs> we've we've hung out a few times and, uh, you know, you've always alluded to the paper and I've never heard the whole thing. I think it's great. <laughs> Seems pretty neat. Uh, for now, though, since we're kind of rounding up the hour, I thought it'd be good to just plug your own your own podcasting work. Um, if people are interested in hearing about, I don't know, things things that are going on in Glasgow, labor, Apple, and so on, uh, where can they go listen to you? Yeah, so um, I've actually, I've got two podcasts currently. One of them is the is called Everyday Revolutions Glasgow. Uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter uh, mainly. We've only got a couple of episodes out just now, but it's uh, myself and a, a friend of mine. Um, we talk about local Glasgow politics, kind of focused on 
like stuff that affects people every day um, and kind of local protests and direct action that's going on or mutual aid groups and things like that. So, because there's quite a lot of, of podcasts that exist currently that are focused on the questions of independence for Scotland and like abolishing the monarchy and those big like constitutional questions that are there. But um, a lot of the time, the people that things are concerned about in politics is the everyday stuff. It's like, has the pothole on the bike lane that I use every day been fixed? It's the, um, why is it that um, the streets are unclean? Why is it that, um, yeah, certain councillors are speaking with uh, really harmful rhetoric about refugees? Like, it's these sort of things that... Um, affect people more closely than those bigger constitutional questions, although they're important in terms of the everyday. And I think that if you're wanting to try and uh, bring more people over to understanding a, a leftist understanding of politics, then part of that is, and a really important part is engaging with the everyday local kind of minutia and what leftist politics can really bring to those specific um, situations and scenarios. So yeah, Everyday Revolutions Glasgow. Um, the other one is more focused on theology. I've not really released anything from there for a while, but it's called The Space Between. Um, and that's just on Instagram as at The Space Between UK um, or just my personal Twitter, which is at Will Gibson GLA. Um, and then if you were interested in what I was talking about with the student Christian movement and some of the campaigns that they're doing, uh, they are on Instagram as at student Christian movement and on Twitter or X um, as at SEM underscore Britain. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. I'm glad that uh, I've been able to be the first Scottish guest on, on the podcast. So it's, a, it's an achievement, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great yeah. job. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can get a cool shirt over at our Redbubble store. You can, I don't know, say a tweet about us or an X or a post. Who knows what they're called today? Um, you can also tag Elon so that he knows about our great content and, uh, I don't know, keeps us on the platform. It seems like that's the way to do it. Um, you can also follow William and check out what William's up to at all the links in the show notes. And uh, our music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.